Are you ready? We may only get one verse of Corinthians done today. I don't really know. But I am glad that all of y'all are here. Um, gosh, I almost said we were batting a, a thousand this today. But obviously we're not. So, but see, this is why I'm so glad that you came. Because if you're here, you know it's going to happen, right? You know it's going to happen. We're not depending on the technicians to, to get all this stuff right. So. Yeah, I know, because you would think, that's how you're at home, you think you're doing stuff. But actually, it's the, it's the church's system right here that isn't behaving correctly. So, anyway, okay, well, this is a Tuesday, so we'll be meeting on Tuesdays for a while. Um, I don't know of a Tuesday that we won't be meeting for a while yet. So we are um, here to resume our journey through 1 Corinthians. I've just got to get my brain back in the right place. My this journey through 1 Corinthians. So, I'm going to ask Patty if she's busy. I'm just going to open us up with prayer, and then we're just going to start, okay? Let's just do that. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here. We wish the online folks could be here, but we are grateful to be here and, and do what we can. And we, as we come together today to resume our study of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us and help us to hear Paul well and really help us to try to step into this letter um, so that we can hear what it meant for them and then can pull it forward and understand what the word is for us. Apply it in our own lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so here is where Corinth is. Corinth is this little isthmus, little piece of land connecting the mainland with the Peloponnese. It's about four miles wide. Last week I brought pictures and did this long introduction, but I thought I'd bring the map back this week. It was a city of maybe 80,000 or so, no more or less tough commercial than other Roman port cities were. It was a very Romanized place because the Romans had conquered it in about 150 BC and then burned it to the ground and then they rebuilt it a century later because of its strategic importance. So they were kind of proud of their Romanness. Um, settled by a lot of freed, freedmen. These were, it was a word which meant people who had been slaves and were now free and a lot of veterans retirees from the Roman legions. There were a small, there was a small group of Jews there, but doesn't appear to be very much of a community of Jews that were there. There were some living, because that's where Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila when they have fled there from Rome, um, and they're uh, Jewish uh, Christians, but uh, otherwise really not, not so much. This is the letter to the Corinthians seems to be very much a letter written to Gentile Christians. And um, it's a letter written, let's say, 23 AD. So it's maybe 23 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's one of Paul's early letters. Um, we can learn a lot about the earliest decades of the Christian church in, these, in this letter. And you're going to find out that guess what? 
They have lots of problems. They have lots of issues. They have lots of questions. Paul is responding to a report that he got from a person named Chloe who has brought him information from Corinth. He's probably in, probably in Ephesus when he writes this. And the difficulty in 1 Corinthians is that we are asked to read somebody else's mail. That's all this is. This is not Paul sitting down to write a theological treatise of any kind. It is Paul, the pastor, who gets a letter, two letters, three letters, I don't know, information, maybe spoken, in addition to being written, and he is responding back one after another, after another, after another, after another, to the questions and problems and issues in Corinth. And we will see that, that there are some high-level themes that Paul wants to talk about, but he does it in the course of responding to them about specific questions, right? Um, so it's not a, it's not a textbook. It is, it, it's why I like Paul. Paul is very practical. He is a pastor who has been going around founding Christian communities. This um, uh, he first came to Corinth on his second missionary journey. That's what the line here is. That's the that's the trek of his of his second missionary journey, and he's just going from place to place trying to get people to listen, trying to talk to them about Jesus, forming these new little communities, and little they are. One of the leading experts on 1 Corinthians is Richard Hayes from Duke, and wrote this amazing commentary on 1 Corinthians. And his estimate is there were probably no more than 150 believers in this city of 80,000, meeting in four, five, six homes meeting in the homes of the wealthier members. But the church is very, um, as we'll see, because Paul alludes to this, the church was largely what? Largely a motley bunch, okay? A very mixed socioeconomic status. They live in a world in which the socioeconomic structure is like the Eiffel Tower. That's the image to have in your mind. A few rich, a few not so rich, a few making their way to being rich, and a whole bunch of poor people who, for, for whom life is a struggle and they're trying to make their way through it. There are millions and millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. There are, there are slaves all over Corinth. It was just part of how the economy worked. And in these Christian communities, and Corinth is really no different than other ones, because there are people who respond from the different socioeconomic structures, well, there's a few wealthy, and they probably meet in their homes, but there are poor people. Um, and we'll see in this letter that that creates issues when they're all mixed together. And what Paul insists upon is that they be mixed together. And a lot of their desires to, to be separate to, for the rich people not to hang out with the poor people, all that comes to the fore here in 1 Corinthians. So it's a really, I think it's a fascinating, a fascinating letter, but you just can't forget this because it creates lots of interpretational issues. Some of the parts of 1 Corinthians that tend to be misread, I think, are, are because you're not really realizing he's answering a letter. And one of the things Hayes does 
is he uses his knowledge and his decades of learning, and he's also an ordained Methodist pastor, by the way, to, to imagine the letter that Paul's responding to and to imagine the questions he's getting to help us see that just reading it as if we're getting the whole thing and not just half the phone call, right? You, half the phone, you're hearing one person on the end of the line. Patty's really good at hearing the entire conversation that's happening when I'm on the phone. She will hear me and she can hear the person I'm talking to. I can barely hear Patty, much less the person she's talking to as I try to imagine what this phone call, I, I, can't, I, I often can't even tell who she's talking to. So just bear that in mind, you know, as we, as we make our way through this. So. Hey, you want some good news? I'll take some good news. Really? Yes. They we're streaming now? Yes. That is so weird. How did that happen? See, this last time it's, it acted right. But you're good now and you got people on there. Say hi. Say hi, everybody. Glad you all are finally here. I don't know when you came on. I don't know how much you missed, but we are still in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> we may be there. I don't know. So, anything anybody wants to chat about or do you just want to get after it? Okay, boom, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle, one who was sent forth of Christ Jesus. By whose will? Paul's will? No, the will of God. Paul views himself as being unable to do anything else. He often calls himself a slave of Christ because he must do this. God has called him to this work. It's by the will of God that Paul is an apostle of Christ, an apostle of the, to the Gentiles. Apostle means one who was sent forth. And our brother Sosthenes, that is, Paul. when Paul traveled, of course, they live in a tough world, he traveled with some set of companions. And they would travel together. And, and, and he would have others around him wherever he was. And... Um, that is, you know, many think that he is writing this from Ephesus, and that's where Sosthenes is at this time. We encounter Sosthenes elf elsewhere in the New Testament, so he is, you know, kind of a known, well, at least we recognize his name. I gotta say, I don't know much about the guy. Verse 2 To the church of God in Corinth. Okay, it's God's church, this is God's fellowship. Church by church. Paul means that the church of God, this universal church, the universal God's church, and in that universal God's church, there are believers in Corinth. That's the idea. That is still the idea. See, you and I are all part of the universal church, God's universal church across the planet. And we, we all um, attend and come together to, to live our lives together in this corner of it called St. Andrew, but, but, that, but that's what this is. And these people don't meet, there's no common building they meet in, they meet in various homes. Okay? To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To be sanctified is to be made holy. To be made holy means to be set apart. And this is a constant theme of Paul's. It's a, it's a theme 
that we tend to forget about ourselves. See, what he is saying to them, he would say the same thing to us. If he were writing a letter to St. Andrew, to this very group, motley though we may be, to this very group, he would say, you are sanctified, you are made holy. How? In Christ Jesus. Paul, one of the key themes in Paul, one of the key themes in Paul is Christology. Not in some big theological treatise sense, but in the sense that everything in Paul's letter is Christ-centered. Everything in the lives of these people is Christ-centered. They are, they are sanctified. How? In whom? In Christ Jesus. He is their Lord. And called, called to be his holy people. To be his holy people. You and I are called to be God's holy people. We have to connect with these Corinthians. They lived 2,000 years ago. But what God is doing in and among them, God is doing in and among us. There is no difference. There is no difference. It is, it is the same thing. We have been sanctified. We have been called by God, set apart for a purpose. They have been set apart for a purpose. That purpose, those purposes at the highest level were given us by Jesus, right? To, to, to make disciples, to baptize, to be his witnesses, to feed, to clothe, um, and the rest of it, to obey. Book of Matthew. So, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere, and he returns to this theme, all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So, right at the beginning of the letter, you can see that one of his primary themes is unity. Unity, unity, unity. It's going to permeate the letter unity because there are divisions already cropping up in Corinth there have been divisions in the Christian church for 2,000 years right there are the, the 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 United Methodist Church is in the process of splintering and there there's already a huge number of Methodist denominations of various kinds if you drive around the Metroplex you can see the Free Methodist Church and there's the African Methodist Church and all these other churches so, but the UMC is in the process of splintering. Somehow, someway, I don't know what it's, how it's all going to end up. Your guess is as good as mine. That would all make Paul very sad, you see? And it should make Paul sad. We have divisions. Why do we have divisions? Because we are still burdened by sin. That, that, that's the short of it. You know, um, a second... I notice I have this slide. I'm keep the second thing. A second theme in Paul's is this big fancy apocalyptic eschatology, which was <laughs> How many of you have heard me talk about the already not yet? See, how many times, Patty? A thousand, a thousand times. A thousand and one now. Okay, it flows from the knowledge that Jesus was resurrected. And Jesus' resurrection means that the age of 
the Spirit, the kingdom of God, arrived in Jesus. Now the age of sin and death is still with us because we can look around and we know that's true. And so we live in between the times when, when the kingdom of God has arrived already but not yet, won't be consummated until, until Jesus returns. And that's a constant perspective of Paul through all of his letters, including 1 Corinthians. And you will see him talk about it in different ways, but it, for him it just drives everything. And um, I think Paul wishes that there was more of the already and less of the not yet, if you catch my drift, that these people would be able to do more to live out their new lives in Christ and set aside the, the sin in their hearts, but they don't. And for 2,000 years, Christians have found lots of ways to be divided. And, you know, the best, one of the best teachings about division in the church it comes from John Wesley, Richard Hooker, others. I think it was some Italian guy who started it or something. But he said, you know, in the essentials we are to be unified. Recognizing our differences, this, he says, in the non-essentials, people need to be free to believe what they want. And in everything, we're to pour out a lot of grace and charity on one another. And I just find that to be a very real-world view of, of how to handle differences. But here in 53 AD, Paul is confronted with a brand new community that isn't any more than maybe two years old and is already falling into division, as we'll see. So he says to them, together, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's, his, that, that's his greeting, his beginning. Uh, you will find that the way um, when Paul talks about God and Jesus, Sometimes he'll have Jesus. It seems to be a little more subordinate to the word God. Other times they're identical. The Christians find that very early they are coming to speak of Jesus as they have only ever spoken of Yahweh. Because Paul's a Pharisee, right? I explained last week. He's a Pharisee. He's a Jew. He's an intellectual guy. He, and, and he's a radical monotheist. And, but he finds himself worshiping Jesus and talking about Jesus the same way they'd only ever spoken about God. And you find that in the letters. Does that mean that he has worked out all the inner doctrinal considerations of the Trinity in 52 AD? Of course not. Of course not. When the Christians in the first centuries are coming to grips with who Jesus was. Who was this man? What does it mean to be incarnate? What does John mean when he writes in his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does that mean? How does it fit with this piece, and this piece, and this piece, and this piece? Their raw material is, is, are the scriptures. 
from the beginning, the four go- as early as back as we can see, the four Gospels and seven or eight of Paul's letters are accepted by everybody. And, and then it, the, the canon grows a little bit after thereafter. But, but you can see that this is the raw material they worked with. Okay, so it sometimes frustrates people, I think, in our world because we are used to turning to page you know, 457, and there's a nicely laid out discussion of the Trinity, all the doctrine worked out, and so forth and so on, and this is not these people's world. Jesus has only been dead and resurrected for 20 years. <clears throat> it is no further from Jesus' death and resurrection to the founding of this Christian community than from 9-11 to today. Think about it that way. I'm old enough that 9-11 seems fairly recent. You know, you start talking about Clinton's presidency or Bush won or Ronald Reagan or, and that stuff still seems recent. <laughs> I don't know how that could be, but yeah, it does. It's all like right there in my, in, in my mind. So, so just have reasonable expectations of what of what Paul can do at this point. The thing to focus on is that they are worshiping Jesus and speaking of Jesus, as you will see, as they had only worshiped and spoken of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from that would come a choice. Were they going to be polytheistic? Or would they remain monotheistic? They were radically monotheistic, which leaves them with what? To understand that in the unity of God, as one, there is diversity in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they will get as close to understanding that as they possibly can, not imagining that they can get all the way. So, Scott, yes? Uh, if Paul received an understanding of who Christ is and Christ's relationship with God and the plans for the future of the church directly from the risen Christ, right? So, Paul, here's what we know about Paul. Paul meets... Jesus on the road to Damascus. But that's a fairly short encounter, right? I mean, right, unless there was some sort of mind meld or something going on, it wasn't very long. But he comes to Jesus, and then we know from Galatians and Acts that he spends some time, a few years, where we can sort of follow it a little bit. He tells us some of the story with other Christians, where they would be what? Teaching him, right? And this happened, and then what is there? Then they're like 15 dark years. There's like 15 years where we don't know where Paul is, what Paul is doing. And he emerges from that with a deep and abiding sense of who he is, a deep and abiding confidence in his understanding of the implications of the resurrection. And I personally think that comes from 15 years of working with the Hebrew scrolls, his other Christian teachers, what happened with Jesus, and, and, and God's inspiration to bring Paul to the point where he is able to speak with a lot of confidence about this. And the, the guarantor of that is what? The guarantor of that is not Paul. Paul's just writing a letter here. Does Paul think this letter is going to be read 2,000 years later? I don't think so. It's just correspondence. The guarantor of that is the Christian community. 
See, it's the Christian community over 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 300 and... Well, let's call it 300 years. 300 years and a little bit more. The Christian community is coming together to embrace certain writings as sacred and inspired in the way that no other writings are. And, and that ends up being the canon of the New Testament. And they believed that they were led in that by the Holy Spirit. And the ground for their confidence is the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's really the ground of it all. If Jesus was re resurrected, right, then everything's on the table. And so, and so, I can just, I can picture it. Paul's letter would be circulated and passed around and sent here and there over and over many times around the Mediterranean. And over time, it comes to be seen and embraced and copied and shared and people embrace it as scripture the same way that the Jews embraced the scrolls that make up the Old, the Old Testament. And um, uh, they see in it God's truth. They see in it the word of the apostles. And um, the Christian community has held for 2,000 years that they were right. That's why even though Martin Luther wanted to dump the letter of James, <laughs> it's still there because he, he couldn't do that by himself. You're taking all the Christian community to dump the letter of James if that's what Luther really wanted to do. So that's kind of how it, how it came to be. And what I enjoy is kind of reminding myself that in 52, 53 AD, Paul, he's a workhorse for God and he's just sitting down writing a letter trying to give them God's guidance about the issues, problems, questions they have. And you can even in his letters see sometimes where he says, well, this is not from the Lord, this is from me. But he has this moment when he says, wow, okay. I don't, I don't have any confidence about what God wants you to do, but here's what I'd want you to do, right? Which speaks to me that it's a man who has many times a lot of confidence about what God would have him do. And I think that would come from God. That was a long answer to a very brief question. <laughs> Anything else? Do you realize that right now we have done three verses? <laughs> right. <laughs> we are far ahead of where we were last week at this time. Going way too fast. <laughs> yep, slowing down. Okay. Let's, let's look at verse 4. Because now he's going to lift up a Thanksgiving. A, a, a Greek letter, and that's what this is. You know, kind of like in our world, there are certain forms certain things you're supposed to include in letters. When I was a kid, it was that way. Not so much now. I, you know, I think email has wrecked all of that. But um, there, there was supposed to be a greeting and then a thanksgiving for the people you're writing to, and then you would kind of plunge in and get, get busy. And that is most of Paul's letters. Not his letter to the Galatians. He has nothing nice to say to them, <laughs> even right at the beginning. But here he has a thanksgiving. And he says, look at verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace 
given you in what? In Christ Jesus. In Christo. In Christo. In Christ. In Christ Jesus. That will just permeate the letter. And they're the kind of words and phrases that kind of we let go in one ear and out the other. One eye and out the other. And we should not. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. I was asked by a church member in the past couple of weeks who had been wrestling, I guess, with grace. And he said, okay, I, I think I know what this is, this is, this is, but I need a definition of grace in 25 words or less. That was the email. So I chuckled to myself, you know, and I said, okay. So I typed back, okay, how about this? Two words. Unmerited favor. That's what it is. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Favor is when you, when you do something for somebody. Unmerited in the sense that it is unearned, not deserved, not paid for. If you think of whatever you think God is doing for you, if you think you've earned it, if you think you've, it's a reward or something else, it's not grace at work. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. God pours His grace out on you because God wishes to, not because you deserve it. If you deserve it, it's, it, and there may be things. I'm not saying there isn't anything. But if you deserve it, it's just not grace. That's not what, that's not what grace is. Grace is the unmerited favor. So he emailed me back and said, very good. <laughs> 25 words to two. I think I can handle that. So, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. In whom? I'm gonna, we're going to work on the pronouns. Beginning of verse 5 for in him in whom in Jesus you know the pro the pronouns are often there's just often too big an abundance of pronouns in the Bible and they make it you have to think about who the pronouns are referring to or you can sort of lose your way and there are times when it's even ambiguous but not here for in him in Jesus you these are the Corinthians, have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Well, there's a little story behind that, you see, because these, these are Greeks. These are Greeks. They pride themselves on their special skills, their special knowledge, their understanding of rhetoric, rhetoric, <laughs> right, and reasoning and logic and all this all this stuff that made them what? The Greeks. These were the people of Homer, Plato, Aristotle. And it tended to make them value all of that much and tending to see it all as something that they had that guess what? Nobody else had because they weren't Greek. So what does Paul say? For in him you have been enriched in every way. In him, in Jesus, you have been enriched in every way. It's not because you're special. <laughs> you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Even the things that you value most. 
in yourself and in your life have been given you by Christ. How many of you have seen the movie The Big Fat Greek Wedding? You remember the father in that movie? Oh my gosh, he just could not stop talking about Greece and the Greeks and everything that the world, that the Greeks gave the world and all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of bring a little flavor of that, I think, I think to the Corinthians. And Paul's point here is straightforward. It's the grace has been given you in Christ. He has enriched you with whatever kinds of speech and knowledge you have. It is Jesus who has given you that. Verse 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. Because they're very focused on these spiritual gifts. And Paul is trying to take it out of the realm of just, you know, okay, this is so modern. I get, I'm, I'm not going to rant. I'm not going to rant. But the word spiritual is so overused today that it's become virtually meaningless. Everybody out there you will talk to, well, you know, I don't, I'm a very spiritual person. And I'm going, tell me what that means. And what, do, what, 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 what? I'm just a very spiritual person. I'm very much in touch with... I'm, what? No. These are very spiritual people. So Paul's trying to take how they see themselves, you see, and use it to help them see who they are, the truth, which is who they are is who they are in Christ. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Back to the apocalyptic eschatology. Let me explain the two words. Because they're good words. You don't run into them too much at the supermarket. <laughs> but they're good words. Apocalyptic means an unveiling. That's a, a big moment. Right? That's it. You're gonna, the curtain's going to be open and you get to see stuff you wouldn't otherwise know. It's apocalyptic. It's big. It's, it's huge. It's enormous. It's cosmos changing. It's an unveiling for you. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means last things. So it's really the study of the last things. So it's about what happens in a Christian sense when Jesus returns and the new heavens, the new earth arrive, and we are all resurrected. For Christians, that is always in view. You can't ever let that out of your, uh, of the view you have of the world and of your life and of the times. I say so often that death is not our end because we will one day be resurrected. That's apocalyptic eschatology. It is about, it, it is about Yes, it's the end, but the end is really a who, not a what or a when. It is really about the return of Jesus and all that goes with that and the consummation of God's restoration and renewal of this world and the relationship with his people. So 
Paul right off the bat says to the Corinthian Christians, you do not lack, therefore, because of what God's grace, right, has been given them, you, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, I am among those. I know a lot of knowledgeable people I respect a lot who see it a little different, but I, I'm with those who think, yes, Paul does think that Jesus is going to return pretty soon. Because, and, and why do I say that? I, I think it's reflected in his letters, but it's also a very, it's a very Jewish idea. Because the idea that the Jews have about apocalyptic eschatology is that when God stepped into time and space with his Messiah to bring about the new heavens and the new earth, and to resurrect the dead, that that would be one big event, like a big package delivered to your front door. It would all be in this one giant package. But when Jesus is resurrected, and nobody else is, and sin and death are still with us, the Christians come to, come to see, to understand, that, well, there's some space involved. And by now, it's a little more than 20 years. They're still waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, I've always thought that for Peter, when Peter gets up on the Monday morning after the Resurrection Sunday, that Peter would, thinks he's going to see his grandmother. Because that was the Jewish expectation, that everybody would be raised at one time. Maybe, you know, some in the evening, some in the morning, whatever. But now it's 20-something years. I, I think, I personally, I think Paul would be pretty shocked that it's 2,000 years later. And Jesus has still not yet returned. So I'm comfortable with this sense of immediacy in Paul's perspective. And that he, along with the Corinthian Christians, along with all the Christians in the church, should be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. And actually, we should all be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. Because what does the return of Jesus mean? It means the end of sin. It means the end of cancer. It means the end of death. It means a world renewed and restored that we can enjoy with God and with the people that we love. So of, of course we should. And, and if we feel sometimes like, well, I've, you know, okay, this is my standard joke about this. Some of you will have heard this, but I haven't been able to do this in, like this in two years. So, you know, I wonder sometimes if there are sports fans who three days before the Super Bowl would tell Jesus, can you just hang on and make it Monday, right, <laughs> instead of Sunday? <laughs> because we get very grounded in our lives, and I get all that. But of course the Corinthians are supposed to be eagerly awaiting for Jesus. I don't know if they all are. It's clear that Paul thinks they should be. Sometimes if you tell people, if you use language like this to talk about what they, what they should be doing, maybe it helps them do it, like eagerly await. 
the return of Jesus. Okay? As you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. That's what, that, that's what all that means. So, thoughts, questions? Verse not look, verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end. Trust yourself to Jesus. Trust yourself to Jesus' grace, to Jesus' strength, to Jesus' empowerment. When you feel weak, when you feel tempted, turn turn to Jesus. He will also keep you firm to the end, part of the body, firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, 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 faithful. One of the biggest words in the Old Testament is, I'm going to try to say it correctly, hesed. Hesed. Basically, H-E-S-E-D. And it's a word about God's, translated various ways, but about God's loving kindness and faithfulness. And that's who God is. It's what he wants us to be, is to be faithful to God, faithful to one another, faithful to our spouses, faithful to our friends, faithful to our children. God is faithful, who has called you there's that word again, called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, a couple of things. Emphasis again on calling us into this fellowship, calling the Corinthians into this fellowship. A church is not a club. It's not the JCs. It's not the Junior League. It's not a business it's not an NGO. It is a fellowship to which we have all been called. You didn't end up at St. Andrew because you were an especially wonderful person. You ended up in the body of Christ by God's grace who called you into the body of Christ and brought you even to this corner called St. Andrew. It's God's calling. It's so hard. This is so hard for us to forget. There are so many ways in which the Christian worldview does not line up with the secular worldview. And it's increasingly so as, as the, you know, in the dying embers of Christendom, at least in the West, increasingly so. The secular worldview does not match up with the Christian worldview and the deepest understandings of who we are and why we're here and what our purpose is in life and all the rest of it. And so just remember, you were called here. By whom? By God. By God. And you were called here for a purpose. No Christian lacks purpose in life. You may feel you lack purpose. You may feel lost, I get that, but your feelings don't express the nature of reality. I really, really once felt that two and two equaled five when I was a little kid. I'm kidding, of course, but yeah, your feelings do not determine reality. The reality is that you have been called here 
you have a purpose. We are all part of this project that Paul and these people are on to make disciples and be Jesus' witnesses and all the rest of it. It's, it's powerful. And when he speaks to them, he is speaking to us. This is not, this is, this is not part of Scripture that's hard to take from 52 A.D. and bring it forward to 2022. That is the year. Right? 2022. I keep... Yes. God calls us, but because he gives us free will, we have the choice whether or not we're going to answer that calling. Yes. So what happens? Surely God must be calling lots of other people that are not here in this room or at church on Sunday. Or So what happens? Does he keep trying? This is what I'm hoping. I'm hoping he keeps on trying. Okay, so Patty is at the nub <laughs> of a very difficult question because you can read through Paul's letters many, many times. God has called, God has calls us into this. God called every person who's part of this Corinthian community. Are there other people whom God has called but haven't yet come? I'm going to say probably yes. And people who might ignore that call. But that's a big theological question because there are Christians who will say to you, well, if God calls you, you can't really ignore it. You're going to come. If you haven't come yet, it's because he hasn't called you. Did I get that about right, Lauren? Yeah. It's I love the image of the hand always reached out. I, I have God's hands always outstretched. This, this is why we're Wesleyans. You see, and let me just say this, because I'm getting emails about this now. I'm getting emails about the splintering of the UMC and so forth. And yeah, there's all this denominational, no bad words, all this denominational stuff going on. But at the heart of it, we are Christians at who express our faith in a Wesleyan manner. And a Wes Wesley's way is to focus on the love of God, and that meant that he had to focus on our free will, because love, to be loved, has to be freely given. I've never encountered anybody who could, who could show me that true love could be coerced, bribed, threatened, could be robotic or anything else. That's not love. That's not what any person wants. And so as Wesleyans, you know, the answer to Patty's question is, I like the image that Lauren offered us of this outstretched hand. And God wants every person to take the hand. God calls every person into this fellowship. And God will keep that hand outstretched every day, every month, every year to that person. Because we, I imagine I could go around the room and I bet we all have family members who we 
hope will yet come to know Christ. I just bet that's true. Unless you have a very, very small family. Certainly two in our family. So, so that is this, this Wesleyan. That's why I am a Methodist. If, if, why I'm a Wesleyan. If the UMC disappeared tomorrow, I will remain a Wesleyan. There are different ways that's expressed denominationally. But, but I think Wesley has, Wesley's right because of what he does is his, his first his starting place in understanding God is the love of God, God's love, not in God's power or God's sovereignty. God's love is the place that you begin in understanding who God is and how God works in this world. And I, that's me. There you go, Patty. How was that? that was great. And we, 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 we team tagged it here. <laughs> team tagged it. Okay. Sure, and see what's our vocation? To go make disciples, to be witnesses for Jesus, right? But what is our temptation being 21st century moderns or postmoderns, or whatever the heck you'd want to call it? We have a tendency to view it as all about us and everything that we do. And the Corinthians did. And so he's constantly saying to them, grace, grace, grace. God's will, God's will, God's will. God called, God called, God called. Because that is really not how they see things. It is about their own wonderful selves that they have come to know Jesus. That's why Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, another Greek city. You know, we are... We are saved by God's grace so that no one can boast. Right? No one can boast. If you, if you are part of St. Andrew and you believe that you, that you have put your faith in Christ as halting as you might think it might be, and you're, you have a loved one who is not, you can't imagine it. it is because you are somehow spiritually superior to your cousin. That's what Paul fights against as well. And so, but we do have our own work and vocation to help people to be inviting, right? And to be welcoming and to teach them. You want to add anything to that, Patty? Because nope. he asked you the question. Yeah. I just couldn't shut up. <laughs> yeah. I think it's always been hard to do that, but I think in, in our culture today, it's become even harder. Mm -hmm. um, harder to to tell people about your faith, to invite people to church, and um, to talk about God or Jesus. Uh, to talk about God, I think, is easier. But when you substitute Jesus for the word God, because so many people have a God, the people who I call and you call, they're very spiritual. Yes. There is some God. But when we, we change it and we insert the word Jesus instead, sometimes we're immediately considered to be kind of radical, crazy, little nutty, don't hang around with her, you know what she's going to talk about, kind of things. I think it's getting harder and harder. I think you're right. I think it's getting harder and harder to talk about lots of things in this world. There was, a, there was an editorial op-ed today in the Wall Street Journal by a woman who finds it increasingly difficult in her world to describe herself as a woman. 
to use the word woman to talk about herself. And she wonders, well, how in the world did we get here? And she says, part of the problem we got here is everybody's been too, too, too cowardly when it comes to using language the way that we always have because it doesn't, it doesn't deny somebody else to refer to yourself as a woman. And that's where she is finding herself and wherever she lives. And Yeah, that's right. She has chest cancer is what her nurse told her. As a, yes, yep, yep. So anyway, but Patty's right. It, it is. And so even if it gets harder, does that, does that lessen, does it lessen or increase our need to be Jesus's witnesses? It increases it. Sure. We have to just be, you know, I'm, I could go off on tangents here. Okay, in the book of Acts, right at the beginning of the opening chapters, Peter, James, and John are arrested, and they're taken away. And of course the people think that what's going to happen to them, that they're probably going to be executed. Why? Because that's what happened to Jesus. So we're told that the believers are gathered together, and they're waiting, and what are they praying for? They're praying for boldness. They're praying that their concerns about Peter, John, John, and James or their fear for their own lives won't stop them from proclaiming Christ crucified and risen. Right there in the book of Acts. I don't know, maybe chapter 4, somewhere around there. Yeah. And so these people... Now, understand what these people have done. Because we're going to go through and we're going to... You know, we will be tempted sometimes, I think, <laughs> to put put to put our hand in our hands at, at at what Paul is dealing with in Corinth. These are probably maybe exclusively Gentiles in these house churches in Corinth. They don't really have haven't really had any exposure to um, the Hebrew scrolls. They responded to Paul's preaching and the perhaps the teaching and encouragement of others in the face of a Gentile world whose typical response to Paul was how silly a God to get himself crucified and then they would go on with their shopping and yet there's there's this hundred or hundred twenty five or hundred and fifty people who have come together do they have a New Testament to work with? Bible studies, disciple, YouTube, they got nothing. They got nothing. And so Paul writes them this long letter back, so they do have something to work with. None of the Gospels have been written. The earliest Gospel is Mark. It won't be written for another 10 years or so after 1 Corinthians is written. So, so we, need to, we need to pour out a lot of grace on them because, wow, wow. And Paul is trying to help them and to encourage them in this. Because they have chosen what is not always an easy path and if they get some things wrong, it's un completely understandable. We get things wrong and maybe it's not so understandable. So, in verse 9, God is faithful. He has called you into fellowship, koinonia, 
is the Greek word. We've all been in churches maybe in the past where the word koinonia was a choir or a meeting room or something like that. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship, into koinonia with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul uses the word Lord. That's always striking because he is a Pharisee, a Jew, who if on his deathbed, if you ask Paul, Paul, are you a Jew? He would say yes. He doesn't view himself as converting from Judaism to something else. He merely embraces Jesus as God's Messiah. And then he finds himself describing Jesus as Lord. And for a Jew, that word had extra meaning and power. Because Lord is the word that they would use in place of the name of God whenever they were reading their Old Test their Hebrew scrolls. Because they wouldn't say the name of God, which is all over the place in the Hebrew scrolls. Instead they would say Adonai, which means Lord. So you see this this emergence of this elevated understanding of of Jesus. So Verse 10, because I do want to get into the next section. Look at how fast we're going through it now, baby. <laughs> I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, because the words here are words meant for both genders. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you go. Christ is woven through every last bit of this letter. This is not about utility, expediency, nothing. It is about Jesus. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. When he writes to the Philippians, he says, I want you to set aside your selfish ambitions and have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who gave himself up, who emptied himself, who was humbled, who took on human likeness and was obedient all of the, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul wants these Christians to be united because division is so easy. Yes, I know the UMC is splintering, but you know that's after... That's after a decades-long struggle. The struggles in the Methodist Church have been going on for decades. The votes have been taken for decades. The same people have won at every vote for decades, and still the fight goes on. The fight goes on, and now it's just kind of over, and so I think a lot of people are just tired. Just tired. And so they're, they're going a different way. But he says, I want all of you to agree with one another in what you say and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, that's how we know she's bringing some of this report back, have informed me, she's told me, <coughs> that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. Apollos is another evangelist of the day. Don't ever, don't ever imagine that the book of Acts tells you the complete story of all the things that are 
Christians are doing around the Mediterranean or other places. It just tells you a story from Luke, principally in the second half following Paul. But there are others. One is a guy named Apollos, so who we know has been to Corinth, because you encounter him in the book of Acts. He says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, Peter. I follow Peter and still another I follow Christ. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. You're going to say, well, shouldn't they all follow Christ? Yes, but you know how it's meant. Oh, you people don't all get it. I'm following Jesus. You people don't understand a darn thing. Another guy saying, well, I follow Paul. He's leading me in the right way. I follow Peter. He's leading me in the right way. I follow Apollos. He's leading. <gasps> no. Paul says, no, 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 no. Is Christ divided? No. There's one Jesus. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. <laughs> so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. You see, Paul is a little bit angered. Right? He take, Paul takes all this very personally. Of course he does. He's on this mission to the Gentiles. And, and you can... You, you can see in his letters times when he gets, oh, what? He gets testy. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And then we get a little aside. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> right? Because he's just kind of working here. He's, he's probably not writing this himself, okay? He probably has maybe Sosthenes who's mentioned or somebody else who's sitting there and Paul is basically sort of dictating to them. I, I have a book at home on letters from this time that how they were done and put, I would like to read, but the font in it is about six points. So my days of reading that are long past. But, but they would, most people writing letters for others would use a professional scribe or somebody because it needed to be neat, because it, had, it was often read orally if it was intended for a larger audience. Um, the ink was expensive, the papyrus was expensive. They would write on both sides, they would fill up the whole page. Um, no, no paragraph markings, no sentence markings. Um, just stuffing it as full of Greek characters as possible. And Paul says at least once, you know, I'm picking up the pen myself now. I'm writing this. But you can just see him dictating in there, saying, well, I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so, and I'm really glad I baptized any of you people, but, oh yeah, them. <laughs> Stephanus' household. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there are others. Maybe not. Right? Because it's this is what? What is this? This is correspondence. It's what it is. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Interesting. Interesting. 
Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there's several points there. I don't think we'll get to all of them today, but we'll pick up there next week. But let me talk about this baptism business. When you look at Paul's letters, baptism isn't something that's put at the forefront. We know that they did baptize. We know that from earlier in this paragraph, that they did baptize. And baptism is instructed by God as a sacrament in um, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew. But it's, in Paul's letters, it's just not at the forefront. Of, of, of what is happening. And sometimes with Christians, I've, I've been asked about baptism in such a way that it's clear the person thinks baptism is necessary for salvation. It, become, it has become, for them, it has become such a big thing that it is necessary for salvation. Well, that's not correct. It is not necessary for salvation. Imagine that you came to faith in Christ on Thursday, you called Arthur and said, okay, I'm finally ready. Sunday morning, will you baptize me in front of everybody? And Saturday morning, you're hit by a truck. Okay, are, are, you, are you out of luck? No, you're not out of luck because it's faith in Christ. Paul lifts up in his letters the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. It is the preaching of the gospel. It is the gospel that saves. It is faith in Christ that saves. It is in the gospel that you find the power of salvation. And so it kind of surprises people, I think, to come to a sentence where he seems to diminish baptism and don't think it's unimportant. It's important we baptize our children, we baptize our babies. Um, it is one of two sacraments in the Methodist Church. But it is not, the fancy word, salvific. It is not necessary for salvation. It does not save. Um, an interesting twist in baptism is that we do baptize babies. In the Christian church, when an adult was interested in becoming part of the church universal in the early centuries, they would go through a lengthy period of instruction maybe lasting two or three years, at the end of which they would be baptized into the church. So, you know, we've done it. Churches do it differently. We baptize infants. Preston Wood won't. They will only... They make the mistake of thinking that, you know, they're only going to baptize, you know, believers, I guess they call it. Um... But we're all brothers. It's not, a, it's, a, it's not a mistake that has to drive us apart. When the Global Methodist Church that you've read about, because I know because I've gotten emails, is up and running alongside the United Methodist Church, you know what they are? They're still brothers and sisters in Christ, baby. They're still brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they operate under two different denominational structures. Yes, Charlotte. Well, we might look for it, but, but, but the, the, the verdict of the Christians on the basis of Scripture is that baptism is not 
is not needed for salvation because Paul is so clear that it's faith. What? Well, it might be, Charlotte. I don't know. You know, I was Episcopalian and then Methodist, so I don't know all the ins and outs of the Baptist way, but I know... I, 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 we're gonna, I'm going to pray us out of here in about one minute, but just think about what, and just think what we've been talking about earlier. What does baptism reinforce? When you baptize an infant, is the infant in any way contributing? No. no. It emphasizes that it is God's grace at work. God's grace at work. But we're, we're tempted to want to turn it into something that we have gotten to the point of earning. And if you've earned it, it's not grace. But anyway, we are going to pick up with that final verse in that paragraph because I'm out of time and there's more I would like to talk about. But boy, we did more than one verse today, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to have been called by you to the Church Universal, to this corner called St. Andrew. Help us to know that we have a purpose, that we have been set apart for a reason, and help us to be bold in the living out of that reason. Even if it makes us a little bit strange or different, in the world around us. Let us not shy away from that. For, the, for we know that we find the truest truth, the truth, the reality in you, in you and nowhere else. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.